I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing P.G. Woodhouse's novel, Summer Lightning. This is our final episode on this book before we get into uh, The Warden next week by uh, Anthony Trollope, um, which is a good name, by the way. Trollope sounds like it should be a name in a Woodhouse novel. It does sound like a Woodhouse name. Yeah. Should be like the pig, the pig keeper. They're not the same. Which maybe just means that no, that Woodhouse is just uh, you know just make doing a send up of traditional English uh, culture. And this is true. So he, he it's just close enough to be taken just a little bit seriously while we also laugh at it. We're going to answer your questions today. First, we're going to talk about the end. We didn't do that last week. Sean, do you want to do you want to do a quick uh, summary of the ending? Do you, do you remember it? Well, the romances untangle themselves mostly. The unlikable chaps get uh, chased out of the house, and the pig returns home. Perfect, you nailed. And well done. And uh, uh, our our honorable Galahad, right? He takes a paternal turn and sacrifices his memoir (laughs) for the hero. He ends up for the sake of the girl after all. (laughs) <laughs> who might have been his own child had things gone just slightly differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because her mother was the famous, what was her name? Dolly oh, Henderson. That's right. The That's famous right. Dolly Henderson, who at one point young gal had was was in love with. That's right. Um, but it didn't work out. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. So, um, Sean, I want to ask you, have you read... Um, oh, you forgot to mention that there was... Um, as it, as must happen in a Woodhouse novel at least once, someone's hiding in a closet or under a bed. Oh yeah, and so there's <laughs> an extended theme that involves involves um, <laughs> overhearing uh, conversations while in hiding. Um, sometimes it's on purpose, sometimes it's uh, less so. But have you have you read um, uh, oh, heavy heavy weather? Is that what it's called? The follow up to this? I'm not sure I've ever read that one. I haven't. I'm read about it, but... I'm hit or miss on the Blandings ones. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I got it when we were in England live back in May, and I'm going to read it because in the part of the description is that um, is that it involves Galahad's memoirs eventually being published. Oh, so I don't great. know if he goes back goes goes back. I don't know if he goes back and rewrites them, or <laughs> he had a you know he had gone to, the, to Xerox, you know he'd gone to the Staples and gotten a, co- yeah. uh, a, a, someone, a copy. Someone made or steals something. them in order to publish them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They get released into the into the wild. Um, so, uh, how do you, I forget, was this your first Blandings? No. Okay. No. Okay. But um, I don't, I can't, I can't keep in, like, I can't. It's hard to keep them straight. I, yeah, yeah. It's not like I'm Doesn't like, really oh, matter. that's the one. The only one I really yeah. know is the one with the cow creamer. That <laughs> the one I can creamer. put to go to the Woosters, right? But yeah. I mean, that's, that's the classic. But I mean, the plots almost, it's not that they don't matter. Yeah, it's like that incidental. they are subordinate yeah. to the humor. Right, yeah. It's more about the experience exactly. of reading it than sorting out what happens. I mean, you kind of read it for what happens, but you mostly because you want to hear the funny way in which he's going to unravel it all, kind of reveal it. Um, where do you think this one stands in the Woodhouse canon that you've read so far, Heidi? I, it's really hard for me to answer this question, David. I'm I'm going to give it my best shot. Because like I just said, <laughs> the the plots are subordinate to the humor. The point is, is it this satisfying plot, which is kind of funny when you think about it, because I'm thinking even as I say it, what an 
absolute master of plot Woodhouse's. Everything has a place. Right, yeah. Everything gets tied up in this incredibly satisfying way. Uh, and justice is done. Um, and love triumphs. And everything is just seamless and perfect. And yet somehow I can't tell one plot from the other in any given Woodhouse novel. Uh, and so... But in terms of like the craft of writing, I would say the amount of times I laughed out loud in this read was pretty high up there. Yeah. It, yeah. Sean, do you, would you, I mean, be able to... I think I would say something pretty similar. I like that yeah. as a metric, though. How much did I laugh? Yeah. Out loud. Yeah. yeah, out loud. That's right. Yeah, not a lot of books make me laugh out loud when I'm in a room by myself. <laughs> yeah. And that's... Or when you're in a coffee shop or something where there's a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. and you're trying to like and every, stifle and every, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone's kind of busily doing their work or talking to their <laughs> or you're calling you know, people from the other room. Come in here and listen to this, which I <laughs> yeah, exactly. Times yeah. In this exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to who? Who who is most Mostly, who's most receptive? Most oh, Lucy for sure, because she just loves to laugh with me. Jack will give me a polite chuckle and Scott will turn his head in scorn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Scott. <laughs> Oh well, we gotta we gotta work on him a little bit, That's right? right. This keep... is why he needs us. <laughs> exactly. Um, should we do any passages here in the end? That anybody anybody have anything they wanna they wanna mention? Oh, I don't know. Do you have one, David? Like at the ready? Oh, I mean, there's a Don bunch of stuff. Naturally, he does. So. Yeah, I yeah, don't have yeah. my book. It's true. It's you and me, David. Uh, well, he could Google uh, summer lightning <laughs> passages, and there's probably like a gazillion that he could point My to. My favorite summer lightning passage. <laughs> Google's favorite summer lightning passage is um, as follows. I, I, I do like in the chapter, the swift swift thinking by the efficient Baxter oh, is in this section, too. right? That, that's that got a bunch of... Yeah, because that was the next chapter after we stopped. That's right. And there's a bunch of passages there, like leaning upon the parapet and looking out over the sea of gravel that swept up to the front door from the rhododendron fringe to drive stood a girl. And not even the fact that her back was turned could prevent Baxter from identifying her. <laughs> For an instant, he remained frozen. Even the greatest men congeal beneath the chill breath of the totally unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> so wisdom, it's just wisdom, right? That's right. So true. Yeah, he has another saying like that. It's, it's like a maxim about when you have been laying under a bed for an extended period yeah. of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Owing to the restricted nature of his position and the limited range of vision which he enjoys, virtually the only way in which a man who is hiding under a bed can entertain himself is by listening to what's going on outside. <laughs> <laughs> I love how he... Because one thing that he does this great is he sets you up to think it's going to be something truly pithy and uh, that has some kind of wisdom and it's going to be something you've never heard before. And then ultimately he's just saying... You know, when you're under a bed, really all you can do is listen. But he gets you there in this such a roundabout way that feels like you're reading, you know, a book of Proverbs or something. Yeah. Like Marcus Aurelius. How do you have anything? Oh my gosh. The, just the first two paragraphs of that chapter are like amazing. The efficient Baxter had retired to the smoking room shortly before half past seven. He desired silence and solitude. And in this cozy haven, he got both. For a few minutes, nothing broke the stillness but the slow ticking of a clock on the mantelpiece. Then, from the direction of the hall, there came a new sound, faint at first, but swelling and swelling to a frenzied blare, seeming to throb through the air with a note of passionate appeal like a woman waiting for her demon lover. <laughs> it was that toxin of the soul, that musane, I don't know what that word is, of the country house, the dressing for dinner gong. 
Baxter did not stir. The summons left him unmoved. He had heard it, of course. Butler Beach was a man who swung a pretty gong stick. He had that quick <laughs> forearm flick and wristy follow-through which stamped the master. If you were anywhere within a quarter of a mile or so, you could not help hearing him. But the sound had no appeal for Baxter. He did not propose to go into dinner. He wanted to be alone with his thoughts. They were not the sort of thoughts with which most men would have wished to be left alone, being both dark and bitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the whole subplot with Baxter. It's great. All of yeah, agreed. Perfect. Here's one from him. This done, he left a little, not much. Here, or he, this done, he felt a little, not much, but a little better. Before, he would have gladly murdered Beach and James and danced on their graves. Now he would have been satisfied with straight murder. <laughs> or here's one. It hampers a man in his wooing if the girl he has selected for his bride starts with the idea that he is mad as a coot. <laughs> it I seems really think him. the mad, of the, mad as a coot is one of my favorite little... It's a good one, yeah. It seemed to him that he could almost hear the wedding bells ringing already. Then, coming out of his dreams, he realized that it was the telephone. It's great. So, I wanted to... Did we talk about... Did we talk about our favorite names in the opening? Favorite character names? I think we did, right? Yeah, we did. Um, Although, so, you've had time to think about it now. Yeah, well, one thing I was going to ask is, now that we've read the book, do any of the character names most seem... To fit them. I kind of think that Millicent Threepwood is growing on me as a name because her name sounds <laughs> so much like militant. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And yeah, she's yeah. so hardcore. Yeah. Um, and so that was not something I caught at the beginning, but it's grown on me throughout the course of the story. I like Sir Gregory Parslow Parslow too. Yeah. Dude, he's like the yeah. the Lord, Lord Emsworth, like the rival character, the neighbor. Just like very ostentatious, but silly name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we have anything else we need to say about the end of this book? Do we want to talk about the denouement and all that? Or should we just let just. I mean, it is it is such a well-crafted scene where everybody is sort of climbing and sneaking into the same place simultaneously. And then uh, it all it all sort of comes out. It's not climactic in the sense that. Uh, I mean, you know, there was no gun on the mantle in Act 1, and so nobody's getting shot in Act 5. But uh, but things do sort of fall out and come together and, and all that. I am a little disappointed, though. It, ha it had to be this way. But I am a little disappointed that we never get to hear the story of, of the, the Prawns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is no story that could live up to the hype of the story. That's exactly of the right. Yep. That's right. That's yep. right. It's better to just to just it's better to just lives in your imagination. Exactly. Right. Uh, think, Heidi, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I just think that no, go ahead. One, right, <laughs> you go ahead. Um, <laughs> I think that one of my favorite things about Woodhouse in general and this novel in particular is how he plays not just with language and character and all that, but with traditional forms of a story like we have sir galahad who is in a, a little bit like Chekhov's gun i think sean yeah, and yeah, that I his name right. uh <laughs> is is leads you to associate him with sir galahad the most virtuous of all the arthurian knights <laughs> and then it turns out that he's 
it's the uh, opposite. Yeah, but then it turns out that he's not. Like it actually right. He does turn out to be the most noble because yeah. he's heroic. He lays his life down. The stakes are not as high as they are in the Arthurian legend, which is the whole point of Woodhouse, right? Like it's satirical. Uh, he is making all kinds of commentary on the English aristocracy and the nature of education and what the world is coming to and all that uh, <laughs> in in a less noble time, uh, but still he gives a heroic action to uh to a character with a heroic name and so there right. is there is an undercurrent not of seriousness and i don't want to overanalyze it because <laughs> we can't stress delight, this enough right but there is some, there is a payoff here um and and that's part of the well-crafted story and part of his humor yeah, agreed. Do you, do you think, Heidi, we need to do any kind of like a lecture on uh, the role of noblesse oblige in this book or anything? Like, just, I mean, it does show up a couple right, times. And I, I, I'd hate for us to, you know, not give you the opportunity. Yeah, I guess so. I, it's so hard. I mean, we keep blowing off any kind of serious conversation about the book because I don't want to take it to some kind of like academic level and it's just <laughs> to delight in it. But there is, the, he's, I, Woodhouse is, I, I would say inherently conservative in the sense that he is upholding traditional English values and cultural forms, even though he's at the same time, you know, making light of them and in, in bantering back and forth with them. Um, but his books, I think, in essence, kind of do uphold this idea of nobility and that there is an obligation of the aristocratic class to uh to preserve and protect the, you know, the old land, the old school, even Lord Emsworth, right? When when it comes down to it, he has he's courteous and chivalrous and um and even courageous to a very hilariously low stakes extent. Um, and so uh, I think there is always this sense that. Um, that in spite of the low stakes, there is something being upheld in the lives of these aristocratic English people. In these circumstances, yeah. though the choice seemed one between speech and spontaneous combustion, not unlike a podcast occasionally, the little company kept <laughs> their thought to themselves. They suffered, but they did it. It would be <laughs> difficult to find a better illustration of all that is implied in the final phrase, noblesse oblige. At Lady Constance, we point with particular pride. She was a woman, and silence weighed hardest on her. <laughs> Woodhouse just like being a little mean there. Although then there's this bit here. Uh, Mil, uh, had uh, this is talking about Mil, uh, from boyhood. Let's see, from boyhood up, he had not uh, once come near to being her ideal man, but never had he sunk so low in her estimation as at the moment when she heard him giving his consent to the union of her niece Millicent with a young man who, besides being penniless, had always afflicted her with a nervous complaint for which she could find no name, but which is known to the scientists as the heebie-jeebies. Funny. I do love that noblesse obese line too, because it's it is such a uh, you know, sardonic, ironic comment, right? That they're their uh, obedience to this duty, to this noble obligation, is to uh, not air their personal affairs in front of the chauffeur. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like we're we're serving the lower classes by not bothering them with our secrets. <laughs> well, that kind of goes along with that line at the beginning of. Well, here it is. Um, it's in love, the beginning of the lovers' meeting chapter. Where um, it says, Eden and Cambridge trained their sons well. 
Once they have grasped the <laughs> fundamental fact of life that all exhibitions of emotion are bad form, bombshells cannot disturb their poise, and earthquakes are lucky if they get so much as an "Hey, what?" from them. But Cambridge has its limitations, and so is Eaton. <laughs> and remorse had goaded Ronnie Fish to a point where their iron discipline had ceased to operate. He was stirred to his depths, and his scarlet face, his rumpled hair, his starting eyes, and his twitching fingers all proclaimed the fact. There's like a there's a propriety or a way of doing things the book constantly is alluding to. And yeah. in a way, it kind of it's wanting to hold up, but also is pointing to the sort of central ridiculousness of it all as well. Um, yeah, okay, that, let's, that passage ahead. also, uh, it reminds me that I, I did come to appreciate Ronnie Fish's name more as the book went on because he he really spends the whole time sort of fighting against <laughs> His name and his yeah, yeah. persona, he's vertically challenged and he's got this ridiculous name and he's just sort of, he's in many ways the quietest character. He's kind of just brooding and and grumbling and simmering the whole time. <laughs> and uh, it seems like it's just a, a reaction against his whole existence, which uh, um, yeah. is you know, coming to a head in his most recent disappointments, but that his life is a kind of disappointment. His name is Fish and he's short and... Uh, he can't get the girl he wants. And uh, I love how uh, that just all explodes <laughs> for him and out of him in the end. Well, and it comes back later because, um, is it Lady Constance who says, is her name Brown and is she a chorus girl? And it says, <laughs> why, why, yes, admitted Ronnie. It was a bombshell, but Eaton and Cambridge stood it well. Why, yes, as a matter of fact, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then it keeps calling him the last of the fishes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's see if there's anything else we need to there's a funny joke about uh, Samuel Pepys um, peeps, ha- peeps. alright um, besides I'll have the dashed nation I'll have the dashed book to the nation have it published in a hundred years and become the peeps of the future what <laughs> best thing that could have happened a- homage of post- posterity and all that um, anyway lots of lots of great places we could go let's answer some some listener questions real quick before we before we go it's what we're here for anyway um so hannah asks this question something we've probably touched on a little bit but she says in my opinion one of the draws of woodhouse reflects the same draw that mystery novels have there's a formulaic aspect that means the reader knows generally there's going to be a happy ending in agatha christie we expect poirot will solve the murder and all the pieces of life of um and all the pieces of life of the supporting characters will fall back into place after disarray i think the same goes for woodhouse the hilarity is in the separation and mix-up but the problem is going to be resolved and the pieces will fall back into place. So are there other types or genres of books I'm not thinking of that follow this pattern? Uh, she says, with the rise of the thriller, you'd think they would, but they don't in my experience. So first, let's let's touch on this idea of the genre having its formulae that uh, that makes it similar to the mystery novel. Heidi, what do you think about this? Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's, I mean, there there's some basic fundamental principles of a satisfying story and uh, for a comedy um, the the trajectory of the story is that you, the story opens with kind of a relatively stable world that falls into disarray through some um, folly or uh, loss or breaking like the society kind of falls apart uh relationships are broken there's uh disorder and confusion and disunity and then there's a turning point 
and which either some kind of heroic action or intervention uh, comes into play and everything get, gets put back into place, as Hannah says, and then we have our satisfying ending, usually with a marriage at the end, right? Um, or an act of justice that's done to restore the original society or make it better in some way. Um, and, and, and in that way, a mystery novel certainly falls into that. So does a comedy novel like this, a satire, a farce, um, a Shakespearean comedy follows this pattern. Um, and then I, I like what Hannah points out that there are genres that take themselves a little bit more seriously, like the thriller, um, but still follows this same pattern. And part of the, uh, the, the pleasure that the audience takes in the story is being able to count on the fact that that the pieces will be put back into place, the right people will be on the throne, the right people will get married, justice will be done, the detective will solve the case, whatever it is. Um, and, um, and that's what makes a story, a comic story, so satisfying along with the jokes along the way, I guess. John? Uh, I think that's, I think that's well said. And I think Heidi covered the, the overall, uh, appeal of formulaic isn't maybe the right word, but a, a, a story or a genre with a, with a, a repeating structure. I think, of, like I think, yeah, I think there are cheap versions of this too. A lot of the examples that came to mind for the second question were trashy examples. Yeah. What other genres like the uh, romance, like, a, like, or like, like, a Harlequin? Like, like romance novels. Yeah. Like Harlequin romance novels, uh, like, you know, the, the creepy fantasy novels that get a whole half of Barnes and Noble, uh, like one aisle over from the weird Japanese uh, comics. <laughs> uh, I, are you, is, did you just like, I think you literally I, I just threw two, trash it, half of yeah. Barnes and Noble manga yeah. and fantasy and, romance novels. Like the, and then the, the two and most then the board important games, butter. of then publishing the board right now. Puzzles, yeah. And that takes care of the other 40%. And then we've got, you know, uh, Children's books and then toys Self-help. and then and then the one shelf of literature. Yeah, uh, no, uh, Barnes and Noble. Yeah, there goes fine. our Barnes and Noble sponsorship. Sorry, Barnes and Noble. I did once find Kristen Lobrenstadter <laughs> misshelved at Barnes and Noble because the employee couldn't tell who was the author and who was the title. Yeah, well, I'm gonna tell you that that, happens, you know, that actually happens a lot. That's I can I can imagine, but Barnes and Noble, it's okay. Well. That happens in my shop too, because what happens is you're shelving a whole stack. So, so you know, like if you have 40 books that you're shelving, you start, right. or you might sort them or organize them. And occasionally, like I find that, and I also, some, but, some but I will say, customers also do that. So people oh, go in, they pull something off the shelf, off the and then they're like, and I'm going to put it back. So they think they're being helpful, but then they don't. Yeah. It's right. Yeah. The library, you just got to put up a sign that says, don't reach, <laughs> don't yeah. reach out the book. Just stack uh, them up here. So all that to say, I think that those are lesser forms of that in the same way that like a Big Mac is satisfying, but it's satisfying, you know, in kind of a cheap way. Uh, and so they're they're tapping, they're still tapping into what is a satisfying story, but maybe not deeply satisfying. Uh, but I, I think of uh, my first, my first thought was like the spy novel, which is not quite the mystery novel, but they do have a lot of things in common. Uh, and there's. There's well, usually, you know, you know, repeated tropes and a, a kind of expected structure. Yeah, I think I would argue, though, that, the, that in that case, what you're talking about is archetypes. And that, to me, is different than the notion of a formula or a pattern, because, like... Yeah, okay. 
You don't think there's a, a kind of pattern to the spy novel? I mean, in the sense that there's like the, you know, usually what happens in the great spy novels is that people are spying and then there's a question of whether spying is a, is like an ethical thing to do. And then everyone's having a, a but sort then, of then you have like the crisis you know, of conscience while the government, while whatever government you're dealing with are like, have their foot on someone's throat. Yeah. Well, I, I'm talking more about like the, the, uh, the heart of the genre where you have the the questions about who can be trusted and this character turns out to be a double agent and then oh maybe they weren't you know they were sure sure yeah, uh, yeah. the the sort of uh flip-flopping of allegiances and revelations of allegiances and and uh and things that, that that's why i say that i think of them as similar to mystery novels in that way just does um does a novel a novelist like jane austen have those two like do would you say that individual artists have oh, their yeah. patterns because in some ways Woodhouse is clearly playing off of people like, well, Shakespeare, which we'll get to that in a second, but Shakespeare and Jane Austen are highly influential on Woodhouse. Yeah, I think so. You definitely, like, Austen always has, you know, the moment when the, when the cad or the caddy woman is revealed, you know, for what he or she really is. And uh, when the, the, the love interest has, you know, his own, uh, his own, uh, you know, relationship falls apart or is disappointed in love and is thrust back towards the heroine. Or the, uh, the girl that's just kind of like, you know, the Lydia and Wickham type scenario is yeah. a recurring thing that shows up. Right. Which is and part of the cat just being revealed to, for <laughs> true, who he is. True, true, yeah. true, true, true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Heidi, anything else you want to add? No, I think that's right. Do you, so... Or the I, conversation I, with the older, sensible couple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... I guess the question is, what do we mean by this this question about patterns and and formula? It, it doesn't take away from the greatness of a story that it follows a predictable pattern because that no, I don't think so either. Predictable pattern is reflective of either an idealized or a lived ex life experience, mm -hmm. right? right? And that's yeah. why we respond that it's satisfying. And so like I was, I'm thinking about, Sean, you brought up like when those stories are bad. Like I, I remember my brother, like we all read, like we all used to read twaddle, right? Like just those like yeah. empty stories oh, yeah. that, um, that aren't, great but they're not going to like corrupt your soul or anything like i remember my brother used to read like the star wars novels because he like loved star wars <laughs> and they're like that right they're like they they are exactly the same kind of thing very familiar pattern um they follow this kind of comic pattern that we're talking about and they aren't very well written they're not very creative but like they're you're not telling gonna, me like... you don't think timothy zahn is whoa, one of the greatest whoa, novelists whoa, and whoa whoa <laughs> Wow. But go on, go on. For the sake of argument, go on. <laughs> I hope you're kidding because I've read a couple of them. Um, no, I'm and, kidding. Yeah, I know. And they're fine, right? Like they're not going to ruin you and they're not, yeah. Right. Yeah. but they have exactly the same pattern as like stuff, a Louis Lamar. Like a, yeah. Yeah. Louis Lamar yeah. is another great example of this. Yeah. Um, and they have, they follow this predictable pattern. They're not great. But they're the same pattern as Shakespeare's greatest comedies. Sure. So it's not that uh, it's it's not that the pattern itself is there's something wrong with it. It's not the pattern itself that makes it twaddle. It's the writing, right? right? It's there's 
there's, it's the failure in craft for it to rise to what the pattern should be. And so genre fiction has as much potential as anything else to become great. Um, but a lot of it is written just for fun. And mm-hmm. so that's like, enjoy it for what it is, but don't knock the pattern for it. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah pattern, was, no, please go ahead. I was just going to say the pattern and the formula <laughs> are what gives the author the opportunity to introduce yeah. the ideas. Mm-hmm. So you, the, the, the patterns are what like, you know, some of the, I mean, look at Dostoevsky, even like Crime and Punishment, which you could argue is a mystery novel, right? It's got a lot of the different things, but then he he uses that framework where you, to in some ways invert it, but also to use it to introduce ideas. And then you can look at, you know, a whole slew of just true genre books that really, really, really uh, aggressively use the, the familiarity of the tropes. And there's still big ideas in them along with great writing. And that's what, that's what makes them stand out from the rest of the, the all the rest of the, you know, mediocrity of, of the genre. Right. Um, and so when you have, you have that pattern, that formula, that that's, that's an opportunity for you to say, okay, reader, I know that we have, we have a common ground now and here's where I, I'll challenge you and I'll make you uncomfortable by either inverting something or by asking you a question or introducing an idea that makes you go beyond the things that you're comfortable with. And that's where some of the, my favorite reading experiences are when I'm when like, I'm in a genre that I love and then someone introduces something that's, that's a little different or brings an idea into it that allows me to think about it where I don't have to think the pattern. I already, I'm familiar with the pattern. I don't think about that. I'm going to try to figure out what kind of novel I'm reading. I just get to linger in the novel and the, and the ideas alongside the characters. So Sean, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, too, that some of the other examples I thought of were things like romantic tales of chivalry and fairy tales. Mm, right? There are these yeah. uh, like essential, uh, primal kinds of stories that also, in some cases, are their structure. Uh, you, could, you could make that claim about a number of fairy tales that there's, uh, they're so archetypal uh, that the, the tale and the structure are sort of inseparable from each other. And that doesn't make them cheap. It makes them powerful. That's all. Anything else we should add to this or should we move on to the next question? Let's go on. All right. Heidi, you good with that? Yes. All right. Um, There's a quick question here from Victoria. The romance plot reminded me of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Twelfth Night. It wasn't a copy, but it seemed cut from the same cloth Shakespeare used when writing uh, romance. Did anyone else get these vibes? And if so, what comparisons might you make? Uh, we we're touching on that right now, but how do you want to add anything about yeah. the Shakespearean aspect I just of Woodhouse? See Shakespeare all over Woodhouse, um, yeah. and because of Eaton, Eaton in Cambridge. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, he has, uh, you know, if the goal of a classical education is to get all the jokes, <laughs> Woodhouse right. takes it one step further and makes all the jokes. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why the stories are so fun um, is because they have this kind of um almost like mystically archetypal feel to them like but they're they're about people like Millicent and Hugo right like who who don't <laughs> have the gravitas as you know Titanian Oberon or whatever but they're oh. still it's still the same kind of story um and told by I think a master of his craft although Shakespeare is better than Woodhouse, but nobody's better. 
here. So that doesn't actually say much. So, right. um, but Woodhouse is such a master uh, to take these big, you know, sweeping kind of uh, comic uh, archetypes and to place them in an English summer house and manage to uh, walk the the razor thin line between uh, the greatness of the story and the hilarity of the the stakes being as low as they are and yet as high as they are at the same time. That's what makes Woodhouse so great. So yeah, it's definitely Shakespearean in scope. Sean, anything else? No. Yeah, I love right. it. Uh, okay, so Amy says, uh, let's see. In Agatha Christie, there is typically a romantic couple for which you are supposed to desire a good outcome. In this book, I found myself amused by the antics of the romantic couples, but not at all invested in their dramas. Sue is a sympathetic character, but are we really supposed to be cheering for her marriage to the fish? <laughs> uh, well done with the fish also. That's nicely phrased there. Yeah. In keeping with, I, th- I think Woodhouse would appreciate that. What do you think, Sean? Uh I, I also find this to be true. I don't really care what happens to them. Although, like maybe like Galahad, I do find Sue to be more interesting than the others. And uh, but also wondering, I guess besides you know money and because uh, she is uh, more rank. interesting than the others. But yeah, uh, what what she uh, what she really has to gain by her connection to these people. Love, uh, man. She just wants happiness. That's right. She just wants happiness. I feel like she could maximize it somewhere else. She's so um, she's so phlegmatic. I mean, she gives up her job uh, dancing in the chorus so so easily. Uh, I feel like she could, if she had to, she could get over Ronnie Fish, uh, you know, with much greater ease than anybody any of the other lovers in this story could get over their respective love interests. Don't you think that's another way that? Woodhouse is Shakespearean, though, right? Because oh yeah, the, his sh- Shakespeare's women, his Shakespeare's heroines so are superior. always yeah. <laughs> better than the men, yeah. which is yeah. what's so interesting about Shakespeare. He loved his strong women, and so does Woodhouse. And part of the comedy is the disparity in right. their in, mm-hmm. in their souls. And so, yeah, we want Sue to be happy, but, you know, whether whether she marries this weak, young, spineless jellyfish or another <laughs> one, who cares, right? Um, and that's, uh, which allows us to laugh at the situation um, instead of being kind of like heartfeltly, heartfeltly, I just made up that word, invested in <laughs> the characters as they are. It's really like yeah, we're yeah. pro-marriage and we're pro-happy ending, not necessarily pro-the fish. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. One of the things I love about the the books in general is the way that these like overbearing aunt or, you know, aunt, just to clarify, I'm not talking about the insect, these overbearing <laughs> uh, relatives of the female uh, sex <laughs> who are, who, who are uh, aggressively, um, do, who are domineering their um, subpar, but wealthy, you know, progeny are, yeah. um, are actually probably right almost all the time yeah like they're actually they're like a little overbearing and if the story were told from anybody's perspective but then the nephew like booster <laughs> who is being pushed around because he's a dummy then we'd think very differently about everything they had to say and oh, that's yeah, where some of the humor right. comes in that dramatic irony yeah they're always right yeah. and then but it the funny one of the funniest parts is that G- jeeves and the butlers or whatever are helping them in the and <laughs> all these it, it just like it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but because of that, it actually 
it kind of actually does offer some inter- interesting contemplations on things like virtue and, and all that, because yeah. most of the time these guys are trying to get out away with being slackers <laughs> and not <laughs> investing in any kind of virtue. Um, and it, in a way that like that dramatic irony is where the commentary comes from. Um, even as we don't have to really think about it that deeply. And I think because they're hilarious, these hilariously overbearing, the, uh, it like actually carries a little bit of weight. Um, and uh, I just, you know, I, I kind of think that you're supposed to think about what your relationship would be with those characters a lot of the time, mm. like where you would stand with them. Um, and I think that would be a pretty funny. Like I would have loved to have a conversation with, with Woodhouse about, about what his relationships was like with his, the various females in his life, because they are, as you say, they always are more right than they are, than the men are. And is that because he went to Eton and Cambridge and saw the degree of imbecility, you know, walking the halls there? <laughs> um, or if it was, or if he looked at the women in his life and, or in the culture at large and thought, these are the people that are holding everything together. Well, and sometimes well, the one leads to the other, right? A, a generation of spineless men leads to a generation of domineering women. True. Yes. True. And the young generation, we can see their future. Like Millicent right. Freeport yeah. is going to grow up to be like. Yeah. Like yeah. Speaking Constance, of patterns. Right. Like, and, yeah. and the young men will grow up to be like Lord Emsworth or, or Galahad. Like that's, yeah. and that's part of the comedy. It's that they are, they think that every generation thinks that they are, they have found the truth and then, you know, just gives way to um to what's yeah. coming right and i think that that's part of but it's not nihilistic it's just funny like it's right. just yeah, supposed yeah, yeah. to yeah. be funny and and it is because we're not necessarily investing in happily ever after does anybody think sue brown is gonna be happy forever with poor with the poor <laughs> ronnie fish right um no she's the um, best chance of being content yeah. though so yeah, that's maybe. but it's not it's I, I think that that kind of guts, I, I think that's what makes them so fun because it kind of guts out of us this idea that he's making some kind of like moral statement about the way the world should be, which a lot of times comedy does. But um, but Woodhouse just kind of reminds us that life is a little bit absurd and repetitive and you take what happiness you can get, but you're supposed to have fun with that, not as you said, David, think too deeply about it or come to some kind of conclusion about the true nature of life. This is truly <laughs> escapist literature in its best sense. Yeah. I d- not to be combative. I do kind of think he is making a point though. Like, I think he is trying to satirize this culture in a way that is like, it's, I think it's mocking it because he thinks that it's sick. Yeah. And just and maybe that's partly because I've read some of his letters and some of the stuff that he was talking about where he was like, there is so much absurdity around me and it needs to end. And the only way that I know of to to approach it is to laugh at it. Um, I think he takes, but he takes the idea of laughing very seriously, ironically. <laughs> um, okay. Let's do, um, okay, here's one. Here's one from Rosemary. The characters and situations in this book kept reminding me of a confederacy of dunces. Apologies to all haters of that book and lovers of, and lovers of Woodhouse. Uh, that was her aside, not mine. No apology uh, but, necessary, Rosemary. But it, but it made me wonder 
The British have a reputation for being sedate and, quote, stiff upper lip. She then includes some movie quotes like, Joni Mitchell is the woman who taught your cold English wife how to feel, or no hugging, I'm British. We only show affection to dogs and horses. So Rosemary asks, how come British authors produce such feeling and hilarious characters? She mentions Dickens and Woodhouse, Harriet and Shakespeare. Thoughts? I wonder if, you know, it's the... uh the part the part of a culture that's suppressed in polite <laughs> public society is the part that then finds its expression in other in other ways that, that's it <laughs> uh, i wonder no it was just the way you said it it felt like there was going to be more there and then you just, there was quiet <laughs> yeah i think that that's right i think that um I mean, having having spent a lot of time in England, there's still some similarities. Um, it's still, you know, it's still the same country. And there's there is this sense within British culture of like of like you don't show what you're feeling unless unless you've been drinking or it's <laughs> or you're or it's humorous. Like British humor is like over the top. Um, and satire and and farce and the um and like the English really like cut loose when they're going to pubs after 9 p.m. Um and they have like this really body and like happy sense of humor. They're just like love to laugh especially at themselves in a very like self-deprecating way. And I think one of the reasons why so many of us Americans become Anglophiles is because we're drawn to that um, in English culture, this like kind of like, it's like a very mysterious to us, this vacillation between- Like Falstaffian? Yeah, between Falstaff and Austin, right? Like there's this, that we're, we're very intrigued by the fact that, 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 English culture is so decorous on the one hand and so like body and slapstick on the other. And, um, and so I, I think that that vacillation is like appealing to us and, but it's definitely part of their literature and Woodhouse kind of presses on that. Um, and that, uh, and 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 turns it into a satirical form of humor instead of just a farcical and slapstick one. It's really fun what he does with it. Okay, let's do this question here from Tana. Uh, unpack the title of the book, please. Why Summer Lightning? Usually I find a reference to it somewhere in the book, but somehow I missed it or perhaps it isn't tucked in there somewhere. Now, the only thing I want to say about this before you guys jump in is I believe the American... First edition was called Fish Preferred, I think, um, oh. which is, I think, a much poorer title, um, but also kind of funny. Um, I think that's the case. Do you, either of you have thoughts on on the name of this on this title? Now, it was also serialized, which may have impacted it a little bit. A couple of the Blandings novels have weather-related titles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I th the next one's called Heavy Weather, right? Didn't we already talk about that yeah, earlier in the episode? Yeah. Um, and so this one takes place in the summer and a storm is building and that storm is like an objective correlative, everybody take a shot, <laughs> to the action of the story. 
um, the striking of lightning and like the heavy summer air kind of thing. Um, and, and so I think that the title here is not necessarily meant to stand alone, but be an identifier for it being a Blanding's novel that tends to have these weather related titles. Yeah. I mean, I think he's being like, he's being very obvious in trying to be funny with the object, the notion of the objective correlative, although he probably wouldn't call it that. Yeah. And, and in some ways it's, um, it's a weird pairing of words because, that's usually when you get lightning storms. They're more common in the summertime. So I don't know if it's uh, some sort of uh, nod towards uh, like something that is common in its season. You have young people who are in love, but also fickle. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, good. I like that. That could be that as well. Uh, but then also, I, I mean, this is not true everywhere, but I live in a place where uh, the lightning storms in the summertime come and go rapidly. Like they materialize yeah. quickly and then they dissipate yeah. quickly. Uh, they're not severe. Uh, Much like just... a certain person's affection for another certain person. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's uh, let's do this one. Um, Cynthia says, first, I love Woodhouse to a ridiculous degree, but the way his characters show up hither and yon causes me great anxiety. I'm obsessed with reading books in order. So I have a spreadsheet where I've tried to create a Woodhouse reading order, but it's so difficult. For oh, example, I haven't, books. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read the Smith books, but uh, again, the P. Smith books, uh, but have been reading through all those, the uh, school stories because Smith shows up in those first. Isn't this crazy? Can you convince me it doesn't matter, at least for Woodhouse? Are any of you plagued with a similar neurosis? I. This sounds like something I would do. and It's not, not really an issue for me with Woodhouse, but I would absolutely do this. It's, it sounds like a great, a great way to spend an evening personally. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is funny though, because I think Woodhouse so eludes this approach Yeah, yeah because yeah. there are these random sort of interweaving of characters. Like I think Smith first appears at Blandings uh, even. So there are, yeah, I don't know. Oh, you yeah. Can choose a series and, uh, and plow ahead. You just maybe publication order would be this. <laughs> The safer approach. Yeah. I don't know. Heidi, do you, is this something you would care yeah, about? No, but <laughs> I, and not because I don't care about this with other authors, but to your point, I think I really like the word eludes. Um, but I don't think there's anything, I just kind of don't think there's a wrong way to read Woodhouse. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to yeah, do I this, agree. do it. Like to me, the interest in that would be less in the content of the novels than in the development of of Woodhouse as a writer I would be interested in reading him chronologically just to see how uh how how his writing is impacted over time and because I've never done that I just you know you can pick up any Woodhouse and read it anytime um which is what it's strength but it would be fun to do that I think but that that would be my interest in it not to try to piece all the characters together as I as I tell my students when they're when they're asking me questions about, you know, the Iliad, how come Achilles is the same age as like Paris was a teenager when Achilles was born and he's still younger than Achilles in the Iliad. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you just can't read it that closely. I got an idea. Like, Zip it. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> yeah. it's, there's, there is a mythological logic that eludes us. And <laughs> yeah, sure. That's right. But I don't think logic. that it's yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it this way. Um, I don't know if it's gonna add to or detract from the stories 
in any manner because they are they Woodhouse is not necessarily trying to create a an intact um in like uh, a world with that that fits the same logic as our world. Yeah. I am now that we are talking about it though, I am really interested in the the idea of reading Woodhouse chronologically with an eye to his development. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think of him as so monolithic. I, I mean, I sometimes I'll read I'll read a Woodhouse and go, oh, this this feels like an earlier one. Like he wasn't quite at the top of his game. But for the most part, they all seem the same to me. But surely that can't actually be the case. And uh, I was thinking about him uh, in the the last week or two. I was thinking about him in comparison to Evelyn Waugh, who also began as a comic writer. I mean, even his even his early comedic novels were a little weight, what maybe or a lot weightier. Uh, but he began as a as a comic writer too. And then you see this steady progression out of humor. I mean, he doesn't become humorless, but I, he starts writing serious novels that where humor is not the tone. Uh, and yet you don't see Woodhouse, who's his rough contemporary, uh, have that same trajectory. So I'd be interested to see if there is an, another kind of deepening in him as time goes by. But it'd yeah. be hard. I'd hard to sense, I think, in Woodhouse without reading them in publication order. The the publication order thing would be fun too, because so he he wrote the Smith novels and then Leave It to Smith was the second of the Blanding novels. And he had not written a yeah, Smith right. novel for like eight years because he says he didn't he wrote an introduction somewhere that he was um he'd run out of ideas. But then he when he was doing the Blanding novels, he had an idea for Smith. And then that ended up like spawning a whole bunch of Blanding stories. So the way the different characters spawn new ideas and stuff would be fun, fun to see. But but then here's the thing. You don't need a spreadsheet for that because you can just look up on Wikipedia the publication order of his books. And then it's there you go. You know, neuroses solved. (laughs) And who doesn't want their neuroses solved? Some neurotics. That's who. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say maybe we should ask Heidi that question. Um, not because not she's because neurotic, she's because neurotic, she's, right? got, yeah. she's, no, she's a professional. He's a pro. Uh, Rhea or uh, Ray, I guess maybe. Uh, I absolutely loved this novel. I found myself laughing out loud nonstop during our silent reading. My seventh graders, I'm a teacher, were constantly asking what I was reading. I was surprised to find that the humor of the late twenties uh, is still funny today. Are there any contemporary authors with the same style? And are there any young adult or middle grade authors who might be similar to Woodhouse's style that you'd recommend for seventh graders um, who might be, wouldn't be able to read the, the um, Woodhouse's reading level? Uh, thoughts on this? I want to defer this to you, David. You're the one with the, your finger on the pulse of modern <laughs> letters. Um, I, it's, uh, I don't know that anybody has exactly the same style as as Woodhouse. Um, There's lots of good humor writers. Um, So many of them are working in memoir, though. Like, they're taking their own stories, you know, with, like, David Sedaris or even a Harrison Scott Key or someone like that. They're making their own stories into comic situations. Um, There is a British guy. um, Sean, answer the question while I try to remember what this guy's name is. 
me who has their finger on the pulse of contemporary yeah, letters. Right. Or do well also, I mean the part about this the um for kids, who would you give to yeah. your kids? Young adult middle grade authors. I you know, I mentioned before Christmas that um I think or no, I didn't mention it in one of the drafts. John Maysfield books. Yeah, and you I know what? think his are would be pretty similar, but maybe I, I would I would say that that's possible. We're reading a Maysfield book out loud at home right now. Um, the uh, the box of delights. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, I I'd say that would be uh, a fairly close. I think that with the um, how did we say it here uh, with the 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 adjustment up or down of you know, like the grade level, if you want to put it in those terms, I think you're going to, uh, you may sacrifice or gain capacity for humor uh, because humor is usually so subtle mm-hmm. uh, or it requires a, a kind of subtlety. Um, mm-hmm. So with that, with that caveat, yeah, those major books might be a good candidate. Well, I mean, you could just read Frog and Toad. Yeah, right. That would be Wind in the Willows. Uh, yeah, Wind in the Willows would be another great example. Uh, where again, it's not going to be the humor is not going to be as laugh out loud, maybe as as frequently as if you were reading Woodhouse. Uh, but yeah, there are some genuinely funny scenes and moments in those kinds of stories. The the thing about Woodhouse is how how the more you life you live i think the more funny they get like the more books you've read the more situations you've seen the more people you've met um the more woodhouse you've read the more funny they all get so that's that's the tricky thing about reading them with with kids although i i would give i would i would give kids these books and not worry about whether they're getting them or not (laughs) yeah and i i know plenty of people who've had success reading these out loud too fourth and fifth graders and think about all the voices you could do oh yeah uh christina wants to know if you think uh woodhouse wrote himself into any of the characters heidi what do you think <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure he did but I've, i'm sure he's in sir galahad for sure or on the honorable galahad oh, yeah. Um, yeah yeah i'm yeah but i guess i don't know enough about him to have any sense of him as a person but david you've read his letters and only a little bit i I mean probably all of them (laughs) in some way i don't know i don't know that i would say that oh when when you read galahad or you read ronnie fish or whatever he's that he's clearly making him throwing himself into that into it um he'd have to be really making fun of himself right yeah which certainly he could be doing i don't it's not like Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We're about to do our, an episode on... Uh, she writes herself in a poison. Very specific character. For you to come listen to us, listeners, talk yeah. about Dorothy Sayers over on the on, on our Close Substack HQ, page yeah. on Close Reads HQ. And when we, yeah. listen, when we have that conversation, we need to have some conversation, up too, about different portrayals of the domestic servant. Uh, I was thinking of... Yeah. Oh, well, uh, he, that book specifically yeah. references Jeeves. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, stop, yeah. Being, stop and, speaking like Jeeves. And Bunter, in his own way, is this uh, sort of uh, like landmark uh, character 
uh, in that in that niche of the the gentleman's gentleman. All right, listeners, this is our plug for you to come listen yeah. to us talk about strong poison. And right. we're going to have reads HQ. Reads HQ. And this then is your next, preview. And then next episode, we're uh, the next month we're going to talk about a Christie one, so we're going to be able to compare. Yeah, all these great mystery novels. I think it's going to be a really fun series this year, and we're going to try to figure out by the end of the year which was the best of all the mystery novels that we read. Of course, we'll, we will have differences of opinion, I imagine, on that, which will be part of the fun. So, all right, well, um, that wraps up our conversation on Summer Lightning. Um, anything that either of you want to add? Any any final? I just want to uh, say thoughts? it was such a great idea. I admit I was a little bit skeptical when you wanted to do this one first in January. Um, and I was wrong. This is a great idea. It's really fun to do a comedy novel at the beginning of the year. Last year, we did As I Lay Dying, which maybe <laughs> felt more like a reflection of my soul than Summer Lightning in early January. Um, but man, it was just fun to read a lighthearted novel. So let's let's yeah. keep these on the docket. <laughs> Sean? Think back, think back to these... Uh, lighthearted times when we get into the middle of our reading list <laughs> for the year. The halcyon exactly. days of early January. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of the things I like about this book is all the references to summertime too. And I thought that'd be fun. Mm -hmm. Like for example, on an afternoon when the asphalt is bubbling in the roadways and theatrical managers melting where they sit, no girl has the right to resemble a dewy rose plucked from some old world garden. <laughs> So, you know, let that be a little bit of wisdom for you That's here right. as we end this, end this series. Um, and, and honestly, living in the South in the summertime, it all, that all, that's very true. And I think I'm going to make a t-shirt that I can wear in the bookstore. I'll make a poster, I'll make a poster. Um, all right, guys, this is fun. Uh, next up is The Warden, the Trollope novel. And uh, Sean, are you going to, are you going to write a little thing for us on that? I'm working on it. Yep. A, a little uh, why why read Trollope? We're, 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 we're gonna why warden? Yeah, why warden? I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I think we're gonna try to include some things like that over on the on Close Reads HQ on the Substack, uh, just to kind of offer some previews into some of these books, especially ones that maybe fewer people know about. I've never um, read it before, so I will be in good company with many of our yeah. listeners who've not read Trollope. This is my first Trollope. Yeah, and uh, it's not terribly long, so you know. Why not good to go? It's good intro. Yep. Um, okay. Well, that's uh that's the end of another series. Um, it's been fun. Thanks for thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for sending in questions. Thanks to Logan for uh you know editing our episodes and uh, making us sound uh, coherent and taking out stuff that shouldn't be in that we accidentally say. Um all right. You so, listeners will never know what they are. Exactly. <laughs> Though I have a feeling he's keeping a um like a like a folder of outtakes yeah i hope so He's yeah just labeled blackmail and his hard drive <laughs> right yeah exactly exactly all right for heidi white and for sean johnson i'm david kern until next time happy reading